I have with great frequency said before I preached a passage on Mother's Day that I felt like it probably wasn't the perfect uh, scripture passage for Mother's Day. And I have to say, in many ways, that's exactly what this feels like today as well. In fact, one commentator, uh, when uh, he was commenting on this particular passage that I'm going to read, said, if you like preaching sermons full of hope and joy, then good luck. Because this is not going to be an easy passage with which to do that. And I would agree in many ways. However, I also think that in some ways this is perhaps remarkably true to parenthood altogether, whether as a mother or a father. And so so perhaps there is something that is especially important for us to think about this morning. Uh, before I dive in, I want to say two more things. One, I want to want you to remember where we are in this story, or if you've not been here, let you know where we are, which is uh, we've been following, of course, the life of David over the last few months. And last week, we talked about David and his son, Absalom. And Absalom wanted to take over uh, the kingdom from his father. And so he is kind of fomenting this rebellion, if you will. And Now Absalom, the son, is kind of in control, and he's going to go to battle against his own father, David. And so David has prepared his men, and Absalom has prepared his men, and they are just about to wage war. Now, this is a really long passage. In fact, I wasn't sure I was going to read the whole thing, and so I said, I'm going to read the whole thing to 8 o'clock and see how many people are still awake by the time I got to the end of it. There was one, and he told me, read the whole thing. And so I said, okay, I will. So I'm going to read the whole thing. So get ready for 2 Samuel chapter 18. Here we go. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set Over them, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David divided the army into three groups one third under the command of Joab, one third under the command of Abishai, son of Zeruah, Joab's brother, and one third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. The king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. A man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What, you saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of ten thousand 
Of thousands of pieces of silver, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the yoke. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. For Joab restrained the troops. They took Absalom, threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a great heap of stones. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar that is the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar by his own name. It is called Absalom's monument to this day. Then Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, let me run and carry tidings to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the power of his enemies. Joab said to him, you are not to carry tidings today. You may carry tidings another day, but today you shall not do so because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, go tell the king what you have seen. And the Cushite bowed before Joab and ran then Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, and said again to Joab, Come what may, let me also run after the Cushite. And Joab said, Why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the tidings? Come what may, he said, I will run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates. The sentinel went up to the roof of the gate by the wall, and when he looked up, he saw a man running alone. And the sentinel shouted and told the king. The king said, if he is alone, there are tidings in his mouth. He kept coming and drew near. Then the sentinel saw another man running, and the sentinel called to the gatekeeper and said, see another man running alone. The king said, he also is bringing tidings. The sentinel said, I think the running of the first one is like the running of Ahimaaz, son of Zadok. The king said, he is a good man and comes with good tidings. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, all is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hands against my lord the king. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? Ahimaaz answered, when Joab sent your servant, I saw a great tumult. but I do not know what it was. The king said, turn aside and stand there. So he turned aside and stood still. Then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, good tidings for my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day, delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to do you harm be like that young man. The king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us 
God, though spoken so long ago, these words continue to speak today. May we have the ears to hear and the hearts to listen. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. David and his commanders were remarkably strategic on this day. They were outnumbered by and large, it seems, and so... They orchestrated it so that the war would take place in the forest. In this way, they could be more guerrilla-like in their tactics. They could use their skills that would be able to help them to overcome the enemy, even though they were outnumbered. And it certainly seemed to work. Even the scripture says that that day, the forest took more lives than the sword. And of course, one of those people whose lives was taken on that day was Absalom, David's Son Absalom got his hair, it seems, that which gave him much pride, caught up in the trees. And so he was hanging, Scripture says, between heaven and earth. It's this great description. And Walter Brueggemann says it's probably much more than just a physical description. It's a description, really, of the whole story. It's the description. Everything is hanging right now in the balance between heaven and earth, in the balance between life and death, between rebel and son, between obeying the commands of the king or not obeying those commands. Everything in that moment hangs in the balance. Someone comes in and notices Absalom is there, but does nothing because he remembers the king's command. And so he goes back and tells David's trusted commander, Joab, the one who's been with him for so long. And Joab was having none of it. He was going to make sure that there was no way that Absalom would ever rebel against his father, David, again. And so in a gruesome way, as you probably heard, he takes care of the situation and right after that, you have this very kind of strange back and forth about who's going to tell the king. Ahimaaz, who is loved by Joab, it seems, and even by David, he wants to go and tell the king what's going to happen. But Joab is very practical. He knows that oftentimes when you have a message like this to deliver to a king, it does not end well for the messenger and so he says, no, 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 you are not going to go. And so he finds some nameless Cushite. Let the nameless Cushite go do the bad work. And so he says, oh, yeah, you go tell him. And the Cushite takes off. But Ahimaaz is not satisfied with that. He wants to tell David the good news of their victory. And so he continues to beg Joab. And finally, Joab relents. And even though the nameless Cushite had started earlier, it seems that uh, for some reason Ahimaaz has, uh, is better athletically or has a better route that he takes. And he gets to David well before the Cushite and so David sees him and he says, what's going on? Tell me what happened. And so Ahimaaz tells him the good news about the victory. But then he immediately wants to know, what about Absalom? And at this point, maybe you heard it all of a sudden, Ahimaaz starts to kind of, you know, he, he, seems, he seems to hedge a little bit. It's hard to know. Most commentators, I think, probably think, well, in this case, all of a sudden, Ahimaaz realizes this is not going to go well for me. So he's like, hey, you know, there was a lot going on. Where is that nameless Cushite? So King David says, okay, well, you stand aside and wait. And the breathless Cushite gets there. 
and tells him quickly, of course, hey, we were victorious, everything is good. And yet again, King David says, what about Absalom? And the nameless Cushite, unaware of all that is going on, says, oh, if only for all of your enemies it would end as it did for Absalom. In other words, Absalom is dead. Immediately, David goes up to a quieter place. And as he does so, he weeps. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. As I said before reading the passage, this is not necessarily a joyful or celebrative text in many ways, but it is remarkably true. What I mean by that is that it is incredibly true to human experience. This is the thing that I, hopefully we've learned over the last few months as we've studied David. You know, when you're younger and you hear about the story of King David, we get stuck oftentimes and we continue to think that even into adulthood on those awe-inducing parts of David's story. It's understandable, you know, uh, where he kills a, a bear almost with his own bare hands, right? Or, or slaying Goliath or, or even that awe-inducing story of Uzzah who, who touches uh, the Ark of the Covenant and then immediately is killed. We, we tend to think about those um, kind of exciting for good and for ill parts of David's story. And yet, over the last few months, if you've been walking and journeying with us, what you begin to realize is that most of David's story is simply a story that talks about him as a sinner and a saint. We see someone who has times of patience and anger, violence and peace, courage and cowardice. What you begin to realize after a while of looking at the story of David is that the story of David is so powerful because at the end of the day, it is a story about us. And on that very first Sunday back in January when we started this journey, I invited you, I implored you to imagine, to jump into the pages of the story, to try to imagine anew what it would have been like to have been David. Because the longer that you stick with David, the longer you jump into its story and you look around, what you begin to see is every time that you look at David, you are in many ways looking in the mirror. And so this week, as I was there with David, as I kind of jumped into the pages and I began to hear him cry, oh, my son, my son, Absalom. I began to remember those times in my own life, especially as a pastor, perhaps only as a pastor, when I have been surrounded by those who had just lost a loved one, sometimes a family member, but but mostly what I was thinking about were those moments when I have been with those who had just lost a child. And one of the things that you realize in those moments, one of the feelings at least that I have, is in the midst of that when you're with someone who is weeping in that way, with someone who is in such pain, is that it is an incredibly intimate Moment. There's a feeling almost that you are invading the space because it is a sacred space. And there's a part of me that every time I've been in that has wanted to leave and to get out of that space because it feels so remarkably sacred that no outsider should be there and be a part of it. I've told many of you about uh, 
two decades ago when I was a chaplain in a hospital and it was the very first week and I had my first on call, which just meant I had to stay at the hospital and overnight. And so I stayed overnight and probably about 1.30 or 2 in the morning, I got a phone call uh, that said I needed to go down to the emergency room because there was a situation. I went down there and it was a teenage boy who had been shot. So there I was with him, and, and, and then his family was, uh, was kind, of, kind of filtering in, and as I recall, and, and, and there was all of this just kind of stress and strain and pain, and uh, you know, it was kind of touch and go what was going to happen, and, and so, I, so I left, but I kept kind of coming back every, every so often, and a few hours later or so, it was around 7 or 7.30 as I recall, the young man passed away, and as I was in the room, the mother was draped, had draped herself over her son and had begun to weep in this kind of most deep and guttural way. It was a weeping, it was a cry that I will never forget for as long as I live being in that, again, intimate and sacred space. I didn't know what to do. There was a very significant portion of me that wanted to run, that wanted to quietly slip out. Again, it felt obtrusive, intrusive for me to be there, that wanted to go, and if I'm all honest, to just leave altogether and just completely forget what I had seen or heard or experienced. But there was also a significant part of me that really wanted to just simply get closer. Why? Because for as long as I had lived, I don't think I had ever seen or experienced such a visible expression of deep, powerful, unabashed, unmasked, raw love. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This love of David is really quite inexplicable, is it not? It doesn't make any sense. Remember again, Absalom, who had rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. In fact, if you want to know how much disdain Absalom had for his father, just go back into 2 Samuel, just a few chapters leading up to chapter 18. You will see it is abundantly clear that Absalom seems to have great disdain for his father. He seems to have no love for him at all. He treats him poorly. All of David's life had been upended. He was no longer in his favored city of Jerusalem. He may no longer be the king. Absalom wanted David dead. And in the very midst of that, right before they go out to war, what does David say to his commanders? Be gentle for my sake to Absalom. What's interesting is that he doesn't even actually call him his son there. He says instead, be gentle to the young man, Absalom. In fact, when the two messengers, if you were still paying attention by this point, when the two messengers returned, they asked him twice. He asked them twice each time. And what about the young man? What about the man, Absalom? There seems to be almost a sense that it is too much, too much for David to have to really acknowledge that it is his own flesh and blood, his own son, who is against him. As Walter Brueggemann says, there is this great wrestling match for David internally. He wants to have his kingdom and he wants to have his son. 
and that perhaps that was too tall and difficult of a task. But of course, as you heard, immediately after he was told of Absalom's death, there was no question that it was David's son. Five times, five times it says immediately after this that he calls him my son. Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. Would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It is an inexplicable, ridiculous, foolish kind of love that David has for Absalom. And one of the tendencies or one of the tenets of this kind of ridiculous, foolish love is the ridiculous amount of hope that a parent can oftentimes have for one of their children. Do you notice here in the midst of the rebellion, there's David. He just keeps waiting. He keeps waiting. What of it, Sentinel? Who's coming? Is someone coming? He cannot wait. It's much like the father and the prodigal son. You remember that story that the prodigal, that the father looks while his son is still far off. As Ken Bailey suggests, here is a father who is waiting for his rebellious son, and he sees him when he's far off. Why? Because he cannot stop waiting for him. He cannot stop hoping that he is going to be out there. And so sure enough, in the NIV, you see it even better here. There is David, and he's told there's one messenger. And he says, oh, well, if there's one messenger, that must be, good. That must be a good sign. And then he says, well, actually, now there's two messengers. Oh, if there's two, that must be a good sign. And then when he hears, oh, it's your, you know, you're, you're faithful. It's, it's Ahimaaz, you know, the messenger. And he says, oh, Ahimaaz, he's a good guy. This must be really good. He keeps being hopeful. He's hopeful, of course, not just for the victory in the war. No, he's hopeful that there is good news about his son. There is this ridiculous amount of hope when it makes no sense. When I was at a previous congregation, I was asked to come to a hospital to, uh, to see a man. His, mo- his mother was a, uh, was a member of our church, and he was in his 40s. He was a man who had been wrestling with alcoholism for a long time, and it had certainly gotten the better of him. And I went, and I was there in the room, and his mother was there, and she was talking about her son. And then she said, well, you know, um, as soon as he gets out of the hospital, he's going to start coming to church And her son just kind of sat there and he immediately said, no, I'm not. And it was this really incredible moment or or, or uncomfortable moment for a pastor to be there and to see this, right? As a distant bystander, I could see, of course, exactly what was happening, which is that her son, of course, or that she was hopeful, so hopeful that he was finally going to get things right. So hopeful that when he came out, he'd go to church. So hopeful that when he came out, he'd no longer be on the bottle. But it was clear as a bystander, as I stood there to see that he had no desire for any of those things. It was this ridiculous amount of hope that I could see and I just wanted to say I was well a I wanted to get out again because it was really awkward to be in that situation but I also wanted to just come and and embrace her and I wanted to thank her why I wanted to thank her for having hope for this young man when it was clear he had no hope for himself It is a foolish kind of love that David has. But you know, as a bystander, it can be super annoying to see that kind of foolish love. This is is Joab. 
Joab, who does not have the same kind of love for Absalom, but he loves David deeply. And when he sees Absalom there, he does not care that David had said, deal gently with him. Joab was pragmatic. He had seen, if I let this guy go, there is a remarkable chance he's going to rebel again. And so he said, I will be the wisdom. I'll be the head of this. I won't be the heart of this. I'll be the head. And so he does away immediately with Absalom. And I don't know about you, but I've seen in many families, some extended even in my own family, these kinds of situations where a parent continues to love the child, and oftentimes it's other siblings, right, who keep saying, why are you still doing this? What is wrong with you? Stop hoping. This is not going to change. And to be sure, to be sure, there are times when that enabling is not helpful. This is not a story from psychology today to say, how should we deal with these wayward children? But it is a remarkable sign of the depth of a parent's love for his child that says, no matter how foolish it is, I will not give up hope. See, the story, it's not easy, but it is remarkably true. And it is remarkably true, not just because it reveals the story about a love that David has for a son, Absalom. Not just because it reveals the truth of a parent's love for a child that many of us have experienced in one way or another. It is also remarkably true because it is not just about a human love. Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Did you hear that part? Would I had died instead of you? Frederick Buechner, as he's wrestling with this passage, he describes it in this way. When they broke the news to David, it broke his heart. Just as simple as that. And he cried out in words that have echoed down the centuries ever since. Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. He meant it. Of course, if he could have done the boys dying for him, he would have done it. If he could have paid the price for the boy's betrayal of him, he would have paid it. If he had given his own life to make the boy alive again, he would have given it. But even a king can't do things like that. As later history was to prove it, it takes a God. Beekner, of course, is getting at there is this reality that no matter how much we may want to bring the dead back to life again, we do not have that possibility. But what the story does in many ways, of course, is it foreshadows what is to come when Emmanuel, God with us, comes to this earth in order to die in our stead. But what Beekner also did, this comment, it also helps us to see that though imperfect, to be sure, this story of David's incredible love for his son Absalom is at least a shadow or a reflection of the love that God has for us. 
You see, when we look at this incredible love of David, it is a reckless love. It is a foolish love. It is a head-scratching love. It is a hope beyond reason kind of a love. It almost seems to be a blind love for Absalom. We should also in that story be able to hear how it is also the story of God's reckless, foolish, head-scratching, hopeful beyond reason, always forgiving kind of love that God has for us. A love that even in the midst of a Joab who was more than happy to point out to us those times when we have betrayed God, those times when we have denied God, who God, a kind of God who takes those spears and takes them upon himself rather than allowing them to impale us. Why? Because we are his sons and his daughters. This week as I was reading, someone suggested or speculated that if Absalom could have been alive at that moment, if he could have seen David, who after his death was weeping over the loss of Absalom, if he could have seen how his father wept, that he would have been shocked beyond measure. Because there is no way it is likely that Absalom would have believed that this father of his, whom he had betrayed, whom he had wanted dead, how in the world could that father still weep bitterly over the loss of his son. Why? Because that is what a reckless and foolish and always hopeful kind of love does. We serve a God who never gives up and never stops watching and waiting for us to return. There is no question that this is a difficult and a painful story in many ways. It's a story that when we first hear it, we might prefer to just kind of slide out of the room and act like we didn't even hear it the first time. And yet it seems to me it's a story in which if we can stay with it for long enough, we will be able to hear in the cries of David we will hear the cries of the one who also was hung up in a tree in our stead. We will be able to perhaps hear in the cries of the anguish of David, the cries of the one who cries not just because of what we have done and what we have left undone, but who cries because he is love and it is impossible for him to stop loving us no matter our sin, no matter our brokenness, no matter what pain we may be in, that this is the kind of God who cries over us, who weeps because of his love. Seems to me that even a story this difficult has good news to share, which is that we serve a God who is reckless, foolish, patient, always forgiving, always hopeful, incredibly relentless in his love, and who is always calling us home. His wounds and his tears and his pain are an expression of this rich love. May those of us who are his sons and his daughters, may we hear in this story an invitation to come home.
May it be so. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God, it is so easy for us to believe that you have given up on us. And yet what we know, Lord, is that your love is always hopeful, always forgiving, always relentless. That you chose not to be God without us. So I pray that wherever we are this morning, that we would hear those cries of David, and in so doing, might we hear the cry of a God who loves us beyond all reason. It's in your name we pray. Amen.